Welcome to Shorties, a short true crime story. Happy Thursday. Hello. Happy Thursday, Ashley. We got, <laughs> sound like such a cheese ball being like only one more day till the weekend. <laughs> but I don't have a normal job, so it doesn't really matter for me. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Thursday might as well be Saturday. Might as well be. Um, anyways, happy Thursday. Anyways. <laughs> yeah, good yes. to see you, roommate. <laughs> it's good to see you again. Yeah, there's no face I see more than yours. Oh, <laughs> and it really? always makes me happy. Oh, really? That was unexpectedly very cute. <laughs> <laughs> I did not prepare to romance you today, but I just did. <laughs> Thank you. Um, what so story do you have for me today? Today I'm doing the story of Kristen Rossum. Oh, okay. Good one. Do you know it? I have heard of, I'm very familiar to yeah. this story or familiar with the story. <laughs> it's actually about me. <laughs> no, I'm very familiar. Yeah. Well, it's about you to a point. And there's some parallels. There's some parallels. There's like a similarity, which we'll touch on. And, mm-hmm. and, but you went down a different path and, and she went down a different one. <laughs> So. I was going to say, as far as you know, but uh-huh. you know, as far as you know, for sure. I'm certain. <laughs> I am absolutely certain. I am certain. 1, I would put percent. money on it. Okay. Are you ready? I am. Yes. Okay. At 9.15 p.m. on Monday, November 6, 2000, 24-year-old Kristen Rossum called 911 to report that she found her 26-year-old husband, Greg DeVillers, unresponsive in their bed. Kristen was very emotional, but she managed to perform CPR while she was on the phone with the operator. But unfortunately, Greg was pronounced dead upon arrival at the hospital. The San Diego Police Department ruled his death as a suicide. Kristen had found him in bed underneath the blankets as if he had been sleeping. But when she pulled the covers back, she realized there were red rose petals sprinkled all over his chest and a framed photo from their wedding next to his head on the pillow. And then next to the frame, Kristen's diary, which was open to an entry where she had written that she wanted out of their marriage. Oh, so poetic. Yeah. <laughs> All of it. During her interview with police, Kristen was devastated, but she told detectives that she knew why Greg had killed himself. She told them that she was very unhappy in her marriage, that she regretted marrying him, and that they had been growing apart for a long time. Greg seemed to sense that she was pulling away, and that caused him to go into a deep depression, and he became very controlling and obsessive with her. She also admits to police that she's a recovering addict and that six months earlier, she began an affair with her married boss. She also admits that the stress of juggling her affair with the crumbling of her marriage led her to relapse. And she said that Greg recently found out about both the affair and the drugs, which only added to the tension between them. I like how she said juggling her affair and her, you know, marriage as if it's like something she had to, like having a kid and a job. I know, you know just, just having to juggle both. <laughs> so it led to my relapse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> had no choice. She said that over the weekend she had asked Greg for a formal separation and that he was devastated, like collapsed on the ground, kind of devastated. And then on Monday morning, Kristen said that Greg wasn't feeling well and he was too emotional to go to work anyways. She said that she left him at home, she went to work herself, and then around 12 p.m. she came back to check on him. She made him a bowl of soup and then went back to work. She got home that night around 7 p.m. and Greg was in bed snoring loudly, so she crept past him and took a shower and then quietly went about her evening while he slept. And then just after 9 p.m., she realized he had stopped snoring. She couldn't find his pulse, 
And when she pulled the covers back and saw the rose petals, she immediately thought of the rose petals seen in her favorite movie, American Beauty. She called nine. Yeah, <laughs> same. Also, a favorite. <laughs> yeah, she called nine one one, but she knew he was gone, and that it was her actions that led to this. And she believed that the rose petals were being used as his version of a message. She said that he had given her a bouquet of red roses for her birthday recently, and she had noticed that all but one of the roses had died. She assumed that he had taken the petals from the surviving stem and sprinkled them on his chest as a way to communicate that he knew their marriage was really over. But even so, authorities still don't know how he died. He had no visible injuries, so they did an autopsy. A toxicology report reveals that Greg died with seven times the lethal amount of fentanyl in his system. Fentanyl is 100 times stronger than morphine, and it's not exactly an easy drug to access. And unlike Kristen, Greg did not have addiction issues, so this wasn't like a case of him relapsing. She told authorities that she had absolutely no idea how Greg would have gotten his hands on a drug like that. After learning about the toxicology report, Greg's family was in an uproar. They never believed that he committed suicide to begin with, but then learning that he had this type of drug, and particularly that amount in his system... They pushed and pushed. I mean, they were relentless about the San Diego police launching a homicide investigation and looking into the possibility that Kristen was responsible for Greg's death. And eventually his family gets their way. Despite Kristen initially saying that she had no clue how Greg managed to get fentanyl in the first place, police learn that Kristen is actually a forensic toxicologist who works in the San Diego Medical Examiner's office. Her duties involved maintaining the drug log, recording and storing all legal and illegal drugs that came to the lab related to a death, and it turns out the amount of fentanyl found in Greg's system just so happens to be the exact amount that police discover is missing from the secured storage facility at Kristen's office. That's like me being a bang energy model and being like, I don't know how that case of bang got into the house. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. It's It's literally the same. One just has access. Maybe it's a limited edition flavor. No one else has had access to except <laughs> but, uh, for don't elite, ask me. Elite I, influencers. I have no idea. <laughs> I also don't know if I'm saying fentanyl. Fentanyl. Yeah. Is it fentanyl? Yeah, I also am like, you know, infamous, like solely infamous um for mispronouncing everything. So I know, but you're also infamous for just confidently saying yeah, Lies. this is what it is. <laughs> yeah. It's fentanyl. <laughs> okay. I stick with that. Okay. So Kristen Rossum was born on October 25th, 1976. So she's a Scorpio. Most accounts claim that she grew up in Claremont, California, which is a suburb of Los Angeles. But it actually seems that throughout her childhood, they moved around a lot for her parents' jobs. Her mom and dad, Constance and Ralph Rossum, were highly respected academics. According to the San Diego Union-Tribune, Ralph was a professor of political philosophy in American constitutionalism. He was also director of the Rose Institute for State and Local Government at Claremont McKenna College, and he was also a faculty member at Claremont Graduate University. Constance was a marketing and management professor and director of a nonprofit graduate program at Azusa Pacific University. She was a senior research associate at Rose Institute. She ran a consulting business, and she co-hosted a local weekly TV show on business and public affairs in San Bernardino, California. So Ralph and Constance were those typical upper middle class parents who were so achieved as individuals that they expected any children that they produced to be exactly the same. Same standards. 
So proper, authentic achievement was just as important to them as appearance. So half of their energy went into preserving how people perceive their family. And to them, that was more important than whatever was actually going on behind the scenes. Kristen had two brothers, and I don't know about them, but Kristen definitely strived to win her parents' approval and make them proud from a really, really young age. She was apparently very driven from the time that she was a toddler, and she responded so well to her parents' validation that as I was reading stuff about her her drive, even mm-hmm. as a toddler, I'm like, uh, was she actually that driven? Or were you pressuring her or, to do so? Or did she just want... Approval. Her parents to love her unconditionally. Yeah, it sounds like it. Either way, she's such a compliant and bubbly little girl that her parents get her headshots when she's only two years old. Okay. And she begins a pretty steady child career of modeling for department store ads, both locally and nationally. And it sounds like because her family moved quite a bit when she was young, she had a hard time bonding with her peers. She was a little bit isolated in that sense. It was easier for her to bond with adults, and by six years old, I guess she was like, you know what, I don't have time for sandboxes and friendship. I need to figure out my future. I feel that. I feel that (laughs) wholeheartedly. She expressed an interest in ballet, and so her parents committed to Kristen's training, and they they approached it like, like, this is going to be what Kristen does for a living, so our family as a whole needs to support her no matter what, and they tried to lay the foundation for Kristen to be a lifelong ballerina. Did it sound like she was passionate about it or was it more like her parents decided that that was the course that she was going to take? It's hard to know. Yeah. It's hard to know what triggered it if she expressed a sincere interest or I don't want to say like she seemed like a, a child, like a performer in childhood. Yeah. But she was always doing things to win her parents approval. So it's just really hard to know what was just a natural thing coming from her versus bids to feel connected to her parents and I feel like ballet is a hobby for perfectionists and I feel like the image that coincides with ballet versus like soccer or volleyball is exactly what this these parents would want for their daughter so I I can see that I totally see that too she was still expected to not only get good grades but excel so Kristen's whole childhood was really just spent dedicated to school ballet and winning her parents approval And she admits in her diaries that she has felt her entire life that she has been consumed by striving for perfection in every possible way. She had body dysmorphia, anxiety, and extreme stress, all very typical issues for a child with tiger parents. And when Kristen was 15, she enrolled in an all-girls Catholic high school specifically for their dance department. But then during a performance, she tried to execute a move where she jumps into her partner's arms and gets lifted into the air, but they mess up and the partner drops her and Kristen crushes her ankle in the process. She snapped several ligaments and needed to stay off her foot for two months, but Kristen's determination to succeed and be perfect was so overpowering that she didn't follow any of her recovery instructions she goes right back to dancing as soon as she can stand. And of course, she injures herself to the point of no return. And suddenly her ballet career is done before it's even started. I totally don't relate to um, uh, getting injured and then dancing on that foot and then never being able to dance again. Oh, really? You don't relate to that exact scenario? That exact scenario didn't mm-hmm. happen with you? It's not triggering anything in me, especially without the body dysmorphia and the anxiety. Oh, like, yeah, no, I, no. I'm very chill and very yes. <laughs> confident. <laughs> No. As I'm sweating my self-tanner off. Anna was 
classically trained as a dancer since she was a very little girl. Two. Since she was a two-year-old girl. Mm -hmm. My grandma was a ballerina. My mom was a dancer. And so I'm a dancer or was a dancer. (laughs) Yeah. And then the same thing happened. You got hurt and Mm -hmm. then you didn't follow the rules and then you hurt yourself uh, beyond repair. Stubborn determination is something that I have (laughs) kept on going my whole life. (laughs) No, I don't think you're stubborn at all. Always following the rules. (laughs) So Kristen becomes so depressed, not to mention she suddenly has a bunch of free time on her hands. So she starts experimenting with alcohol and weed. And initially, it's not that concerning. It seems like your typical teenage experience. But one night at a football game behind the bleachers, someone offers Kristen meth and she tries it. (laughs) I was about to say... I did not take the meth route. I took like the chocolate muffin. Yeah, you definitely. Chai latte <laughs> burrito route. The, those became your vices. Yeah, I treated my life like a buffet. <laughs> okay, that's fair. So she tries meth and then everything snowballs from here. Kristen is suddenly a 15-year-old with a meth addiction. And her parents try to help. They they really do try. Mm-hmm. But they also don't even understand how they've played a huge role in getting her to this point, if not completely playing like all the roles (laughs) in getting her to that point. So their attempts at helping aren't great. And because appearance mattered so much to them, they never sent her to rehab. They only took her to 12-step meetings and arranged for outpatient treatment plans, which really didn't work. Like She really needed an actual rehab rehab stay. One day, her parents came home from vacation to find that she and her druggy friends had stolen cash and valuables from the home, and a major fight happens. Kristen and her dad fought physically, and then Kristen attempted to cut her wrists. The wounds ended up being superficial, and instead of taking her to the hospital, they bandaged her up themselves and didn't tell anyone what happened. Her mom later said that she was afraid of what would happen if they had taken her to the hospital. And this becomes the routine. Kristen goes balls to the walls. Her parents try to intervene. She seems to get clean. They give her more freedom. And then she uses again and the cycle repeats. This goes on for years. And even though she ends up dropping out of high school, her parents use their academic sway to get her a spot at Redlands University. But she relapses several more times and then ends up dropping out of college as well. In 1994, Kristen is still living through this nightmare cycle, except now that she's an adult living on her own, when she relapses, she drops off the face of the earth and her parents don't see her or hear from her for weeks at a time. During one of these periods, Kristen was walking across the bridge that connects California to Tijuana to meet with her dealer. And like out of a movie, she drops her jacket on the ground. And as she reaches down to grab it, A handsome man named Greg DeVillers, who had been walking on the bridge with some friends, bends down and scoops it up for her. The people Greg was with said that the connection between he and Kristen was like almost magnetic. They looked at each other and immediately launched into banter. They're laughing and chatting. And then within like a minute, they've learned that they both speak French. So they just start bantering in French. Oh, (laughs) those connections just do me over. (laughs) And then in what seems like such a cheesy but very sweet symbolic Hollywood moment, Kristen turns and walks with him away from her dealer and she spends the rest of the evening with Greg and all of his friends. From that night on, Kristen and Greg were inseparable 
and within a few weeks, they both admitted that they had fallen in love with each other. Greg had an apartment with his two brothers, and they were uh, none too pleased with Kristen's moving in. She had tearfully admitted to Greg that she had a meth addiction that she was trying to kick, and his brothers just wanted nothing to do with that. They just thought it was bad news. Yeah, they felt like Greg deserved more, and they also noticed that things started going missing in the apartment after Kristen moved in, so they had several reasons for not being on board with this. But Greg was insistent that he loved this woman who he believed was a victim to her addiction, and he told them that he was determined to be a positive, supportive influence for her. Greg was wonderful. I was going to say, what's what's this dude's birthday? He He sounds so empathetic and sweet. Well, he was born on November 12th, 1973. So he's a Scorpio Scorpio. too. His parents were both from France, but raised Greg and his two brothers in Southern California. His dad was a prominent plastic surgeon with offices in California and Monaco. Greg, in comparison to Kristen's meth addiction, was pretty straight laced, but really he just hated drugs. He didn't do them. Nobody in his life did them. And so in terms of her addiction, he helped Kristen in a way that seems like no one in her life had before that. With his support and encouragement, Kristen gets sober, like really, truly sober. And then she enrolls in San Diego State University. She graduates with honors and a degree in chemistry in 1998. And a year later, on June 5th, 1999, Greg and Kristen get married. Kristen's family absolutely adored Greg. Her parents described him as being almost angelic, like a miracle sent to them straight from the heavens. Kind of was. Yeah. I think once Kristen got sober, Greg's family became more supportive, but I don't know if they ever truly accepted her. While she was still in school, Kristen got an internship at the San Diego Medical Examiner's Office. And then after graduation, she was hired as a full-time forensic toxicologist. I guess that she had shown so much promise that she was offered the job with no background checks or drug tests, and she never told her new employer about her sobriety, so she just got to work as if everything was all good. Yeah, she <laughs> have access to the things that would... Right, but yeah. she literally did. Like Her job was to handle all of the drugs and log all of the drugs yeah. and like securely, securely lock away all the yeah. drugs, you know? <laughs> like she held the key to the cabinet to the drugs. where the drugs were. <laughs> so it's just like crazy. And I couldn't find anything that mentions how her friends and family felt about this. So I, uh, that's a mystery. I don't, I don't know what to think about it. So even in early 2000, which is six years into their relationship, Greg is still head over heels for Kristen. And it's around the same time when a very handsome married forensic toxicologist from Australia named Dr. Michael Roberts takes a position as Kristen's new supervisor. They bond after sharing that they are both unhappy in their marriages and they waste no time starting an affair. It's not clear when, but Greg learned of the affair and the relapse at the same time. And he tells Kristen that if she doesn't quit her job and go to rehab, he's going to go to the medical examiner himself and get them both fired. But what poor Greg didn't know was that Kristen was never actually faithful to him. And she had even tried to cancel their wedding. Wow. Apparently a month before the wedding date, Kristen broke down and told her mom that she wanted to cancel it all. Constance just chalked it up to pre-wedding nerves and convinced her daughter to go through with it. So she does. But a few months later, she tells her mom that she regrets the marriage and she feels trapped like a bird in a cage. And Kristen shared this feeling with several people. Like, like her mom no was secret. <laughs> yeah. Her mom was not the only person. Like, several of her friends knew about it, and then 
a few months after the wedding, Kristen actually tells her brother that she feels very strongly she married the wrong person. So knowing all of that, you know, it's not surprising to learn that Kristen maintained relationships of varying degrees of intimacy with more than one old boyfriend, like since meeting Greg, and that it didn't change even after they were married. So it seems as though her boss, Michael, was just like the latest in, this, in a string of many. Yeah. So a month after Greg's alleged suicide, Kristen is fired from her job when they learn not only of her meth habit, but that she was actually stealing the meth from work. Her boss, Michael, was also fired because he allegedly knew of her drug use and covered it up to protect her. But even without the meth, they likely both would have been fired because news of their affair had come out. Yeah. And once he lost his job, Michael's visa expired, so he moves back to Australia. But because of all of these pieces falling into place, San Diego PD launches a homicide investigation into Greg's death. And thank God they did. Because they find the smoking gun that proves Kristen is a liar, liar, pants on fire. Because I guess apparently the fact that that the drugs were missing from her place of work wasn't enough of a smoking gun. I I, I don't really totally understand that. Yeah. But it isn't. I don't get how anything works anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just sad for Greg. Yeah. Okay. So remember how on the day of Greg's death, Kristen claimed to come home at 12 p.m.? And she gave him some soup and then went back to work. Yes. And also how she claimed that the red rose petals on his chest must have come from the single surviving stem from the bouquet that he bought her almost two weeks earlier. That's the moment I knew she was guilty. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. Come on. (laughs) Well, it turns out credit card transactions show Kristen purchasing a single rose at a Vaughn's grocery store at 1242 p.m. (sighs) the day that Greg died. That was the time in which she claimed that she was already at home serving him soup and making sure he was okay. So Kristen is arrested and charged for the murder of her husband in July of 2001. Her parents, good old Constance and Ralph, Mm -hmm. posted her $1.2 million bail and she went home. While she was waiting for the trial to begin, Kristen gets a job as a toxicologist at a lab she had worked at in the past. And I want to clarify, it's not the San Diego Medical Examiner's Office. She certainly wasn't going to go back to that job. But this is just like wild to me. This woman is about to go on trial for allegedly stealing fentanyl from the lab that she worked at and then murdering her husband with it. But she's allowed to not only get a job, but get a job in the same exact environment where she was when she allegedly committed that crime. But it's also like people have a really hard time getting jobs in general. Like they'll have like a master's degree. They'll be in school for eight years and they still can't get employed. And then this chick rolls in with no background checks and she's just doing a okay. I know. And so I, I don't really, I never really thought about that. Like if you, if you make bail, then what are your rights as like an, a citizen? Mm-hmm. You know, are, are you allowed to get jobs? Like, I, I don't... Normally on paperwork, you have to, f- you know, fill out the fact that you have been arrested or you've been uh, convicted of certain things. But right. I guess she hasn't been convicted. She hasn't been convicted, so... so I think maybe that's it. All right, that makes sense to me. So a few months later, Michael learns that not only is Greg's death now ruled a homicide and that Kristen was arrested and charged with his murder... But he also learns that authorities believe he was her co-conspirator. They think because he was her boss, and a boss that she was banging at that, that he likely helped her. Whether it was the planning or the stealing of the drugs or trying to cover up traces of all of this, detectives believed that Michael was involved in some capacity, but he denies it. 
And it doesn't really matter either way because he wasn't ever formally charged with anything. So the trial focuses solely on Kristen. Okay. Once the trial begins, the prosecution argued that Kristen killed her husband to keep him from outing her drug use and her affair. While her lawyers argued that Greg was extremely depressed and suicidal. And she was just a young woman who wanted out of an unhappy marriage. Coincidentally. Yeah. Greg's brother testified and said that he doesn't believe Greg would kill himself in general, but especially in this manner because Greg hated drugs. He believed Kristen was willing and capable of committing murder and that in a very melodramatic way, tried to incorporate the rose petal scene from her favorite movie, American Beauty. Several family members, colleagues, and friends of Greg's have all stated that Kristen's version of their life You know, that this is like a very bleak and depressing marriage between two people who were drifting apart. That isn't at all how Greg portrayed it, even right up to the end. They said that he seemed very happy. And even just before he died, he told one of his friends how proud of Kristen he was. He was bragging about all of her career accomplishments and even mentioned having a family soon. He said that he wanted all girls. He never mentioned to anyone in his life, no friends, family, or colleagues, that Kristen was unhappy or that they were allegedly growing apart. It seems like if that is true, he didn't know that it was happening. Yeah, that was just, that's on her end. He was even making vacation plans with a bunch of his friends. Like he had a weekend in Vegas planned, a fishing trip to Mexico, a snowboarding weekend. So this idea that he was so deeply depressed that he would commit suicide and that he supposedly knew for several months how unhappy Kristen was and that she felt trapped and all that, it just doesn't seem like her version of events is very honest. I'm not buying it. And luckily, the jury also didn't buy it. On November 12th, 2002, what would have been Greg's 29th birthday, Kristen was found guilty of first-degree murder and she was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. In 2006, Greg's family filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Kristen and the San Diego County. The family won, and Kristen was ordered to pay $100 million, wow. while San Diego County was ordered to pay $1.5 million. So I think it's safe to assume that the county probably paid up, but with Kristen, she's never going to pay a dime because she's never going to make a dime. No. You know? She doesn't even have that kind of money to begin with. So when lawsuits like this are filed, um, it, it's more often than not a measure taken to prevent someone like Kristen from profiting off of her crimes. Greg's family feared that she was shopping the rights to her story, and it was estimated that she can make up to $60 million, so the jury sided with his family. Mm -hmm. It turns out that that same year, prosecutors filed a criminal complaint against Michael Robertson, but because he had already moved to Australia, not much can really happen with it. If he enters the states voluntarily, or if the Australian government decides to extradite him, He faces up to three years in prison if he were found guilty of being a co-conspirator. But from what I can find, he has never returned. As of 2014, he was single and running a successful forensic consulting business in Australia. He has always denied being involved in Greg's death or any planning that went into it. He rejects the idea that he helped Kristen steal drugs from work. But he did say it doesn't surprise him at all that the lab's drug records don't match the inventory because it's just the reality of an imperfect system. In fact, part of his job description was to improve and secure the lab's processing system, which would have made it more difficult for anyone to steal said drugs. And he had gotten the job at at the San Diego Medical Examiner's office 
six months before Greg died. So it kind of sounds very ironic. (laughs) It's whether he's involved in it or not. It just sounds like he got hired to like improve the place. And then he just started banging Banging the girl who was most likely to steal the drugs. So, you know. Who needs to be good at their job? Yeah. There were reports that a few days before Greg's death, Michael and Kristen were seen having an emotionally charged exchange at work, which later on, given what happened, it led a lot of people to assume that they were planning Greg's death together. But Michael insists that he had actually learned about her relapse and he was confronting her about it. He insists that they were absolutely in no way planning anything together, much less her husband's murder. He said at the very worst, his only crime was having an extramarital affair. Kristen is serving her prison sentence at the Central California Women's Correctional Facility in Chowchilla. Her attempts at a new trial have not been successful. In an interview she gave, she said, quote, I think Greg was depressed and so upset with life that he took his whole life. And he did so in such a way that could have put blame on me and Michael Robertson. I don't know how intentional that was, but that's the outcome of it. And it could have very well been his plan to really hurt me in a way that he felt I hurt him by, in a sense, saying, if I can't have her, nobody will. I feel a lot of guilt because it was my actions that made him so upset in the first place, unquote. Has to be the victim, but then takes a little bit of responsibility so you can't point fingers at her. Yeah. In the couple's wedding video from 1999, Greg can be heard saying how excited he is to spend the rest of his life with his new wife, Kristen. And unbeknownst to him, he would, but only because his life ended 17 months later. Greg DeVillers died six days shy of his 27th birthday. If he were alive today, he would be turning 49 years old this November. But Kristen Rossum robbed him of the last 23 birthdays and who knows how many more beyond that. All because he threatened to expose Kristen's meth addiction and an affair with her boss. And that is the story of Kristen Rossum. The story just checks all my boxes, man, of just what I really hate about people. My voice cracked. <laughs> I thought you started crying. No, my voice or my throat just closed up. It said on it. Anna, shut your mouth. Anna, shut your mouth. Everyone knows you don't like cheaters. <laughs> you don't have to say it again. <laughs> shut up. Shut up. knows. <laughs> quit this narrative i know <clears throat> that was so well done thanks yeah really well done and i'm very happy we don't do meth oh my gosh Good for us. that's one of my biggest takeaways from this too i'm yeah. so happy we don't do meth or fentanyl or um you know banging bosses i'm glad we don't do things like that either <laughs> we're each other's bosses basically so hey, well <laughs> hey. Hey. <laughs> on that note <laughs> happy thursday i love you bye you don't want to love me i love you <laughs> But after what I said, I was like, you know, now I have to be cool about it. (laughs) Okay, bye. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. To view detailed source material, as well as content from today, please visit us on Instagram and TikTok at Shorty's Podcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help with the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, patreon.com slash shortiespodcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley-Johnson and Ana Katarina.